Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, the broadcaster, Anne-Marie Batson, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Football is tribal territory, in which loyalty can be distorted and knee-jerk reactions are made. It's significant, then, that the football world is rallying around Harry Maguire. Not just his England teammates, or Manchester United supporters, but other clubs, rivals who'd normally probe to find any weakness. Maguire might have been short of form and confidence, but no one deserves to be booed by his own fans when he represents his country. As a former player, Adrian, I'm sure you'll agree, it's got to stop, hasn't it? It has got to stop, yeah, and I think that Gareth Southgate was absolutely right to call it out as he saw it. It was a really strong, sort of visibly angry response, and I fully understood that. And I'm also really, really pleased that all the senior figures within the England dressing room have also backed up their mate Harry Maguire. Great solidarity goes to show that that the team spirit is really strong. There's just nothing to be gained from from booing a player, not least before the match has started. I mean, it's fair and it's okay not to rate somebody. It's okay to think that he's playing badly and it's okay to think, well, I wouldn't have picked him, but you're there to support. And and there's nothing about Harry Maguire that's like really that dislikable. How can you hate Slabhead? He's a great <laughs> lad, isn't he? He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a top personality, down to earth. If he wasn't playing, he'd be he'd probably be in the stands supporting the, the team. These are great days for England, great days for England supporters. My message would be, enjoy it. Don't waste your time and breath, you know, taking confidence away from a key player. It, it, it was absolute madness. Yeah, you know, a key player was in the team of the tournament at the Euros recently. Yeah, Emery, you were there on both matches. What strikes me is that the actions of a minority, let's get that right, are such a contrast with the, the mood around the England squad at the moment. You know, I've been around, you know, for quite a few years and I don't think I can remember a squad which is so likeable in terms of its sort of collective personality. You know, being there... Hearing that, what was your reaction? Oh, what what was that? 
That's what that's what I turned to the person I said go what was that because it was so loud I don't know how it came across on the television but sitting and hearing that we were both looking go what on earth was that it was proper loud so you couldn't have missed it and we all, everyone just looked at each other going where is that coming from you couldn't I mean obviously you couldn't tell what sections of the Wembley Stadium were doing it but it was really really apparent that it happened and I really don't want to go back to those days where players of the past, mainly that golden generation, and the golden generation had a lot of faults through it. We know that. But I don't want to go through those back to those days where players feel paralysed, if that's the right word, when they're on the pitch because they're worried about how their actions are going to be interpreted by the crowd, that they feel if they put one foot wrong, the crowd is going to absolutely react to that and boo them for that. And we, it's not like we haven't been here before. We've had... David Beckham been booed before. We've had Wayne Rooney been booed. John Barnes has talked about being booed as well. You know, I saw on social media after when it happened, oh, this is all the media's fault. This is the media's fault for fueling all the scrutiny that's been going on about Harry Maguire over the last few months. Look, his form, as we all know, as journalists, as analysts, as pundits, we've all said the same thing. His form has been off this season. Hopefully next season that won't be the case. But Clearly, Gareth Southgate sees something in him. He was brilliant in the Euros. He's a captain himself, so he's probably, you know, helpful in terms of bringing the team together and also being part of, I think he's part of the vice-captains group, isn't he? Being that voice, that leader on the pitch. So critical, yes, because that in the media, that is what we're there to do. We're not their cheerleaders, but we will not tolerate abuse. And I just thought it was, I, I still cannot believe that that happened. And I cannot imagine what it was like for a second to be on that pitch, standing with your teammates and hearing your name booed quite loudly. I just, I can't imagine what that was like, Mike, for him. Yeah. Now, looking at the bigger picture of Manchester United as a whole, Aid, is it an unhappy club? Because you look around, you've got Paul Pogba essentially saying he's happier with France. You've got Marcus Rashford struggling with his form, you know, clashing quite understandably with, with some abusive fans. You've got Ronaldo unable to hide his frustrations. Is this all down to a almost like a lack of certainty or authority at the club? Yeah, it is. I think it's a club lacking in direction at the moment. It's in limbo. No one knows what's happening. What's going on? Mm. Who's the manager going to be? What's the direction? Who, you know, who's taking us forward? What's the plan? And they're just sort of meandering towards the end of the season when hopefully they're all going to find out. And I think that's causing immense frustration behind the scenes inside that dressing room. I think... A lot of the players, when you are in limbo and, it, and it's all a bit weird, it can make you think about what else is out there as well. And so some are probably already looking for a way out. And that you know, that was never the case at Man United. <laughs> it's, it's always been the case that Man United choose whether you stay or go. They, they're in charge of it, but it doesn't feel like that's the case at the moment. And, and yeah, one or two players, well, I would imagine five or six players are probably thinking, right, well, I'm probably not going to be here. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a strange vibe, isn't it, at Manchester United? Not least because Ronaldo's a model pro. Marcus Rashford, we know what a great character he is, what a lovely personality. So for these two guys to, to, to be, you know, showing such frustration and others, I think, it, it, yeah, it, it shows what's going on. Yeah, when you look at the whole managerial situation, Anne-Marie, you know, things are slowly getting a little clearer, it seems. You've got Lopetegui saying, well, I'm going to stay at Seville. You've got Luis Enrique signalling that he's unavailable until after the World Cup with Spain. 
you know, there are reported interviews with, with Pochettino and Ten Hag. Do you think, again, to, to get past this uncertainty that, that Aid referred to there, that more progress should have been made on these managerial issues during the break? Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. And I'm also a little bit surprised that we're hearing about these interviews that are taking place, considering some pundits were up in arms that players were leaking stories to the press. This is going to be a very intensive process. There's going to be a lot of eyes on it because Manchester United have got to get this right. They've got to get this right. They cannot afford to make another mistake. So I'm a little bit surprised that we've been seeing so many stories about the reaction to Ten Hag's apparent interview. And obviously, Pochettino's gone a little bit quiet. I think um, I think more should have been done, but we're not privy to those conversations. I'd like to think. Let me rephrase that. I'd like to think more has been done in the progress that they've moved forward with it, and they've got they've got down to a shortlist now. And Manchester United have got an idea in their head where they want to go and who they are looking at. Ten Hag, for me, I think he's got some big problems going on at Ajax. So how he's able to concentrate on the fact that you know his team are only two points ahead against uh, PSV and, you know, considering the Manchester United application process to become the next manager must be quite heavy on his shoulders right now. So I'd like to think that Manchester United now have got a firm idea in their minds of who they're looking at and what they're looking at. I just think it should be a little bit more quieter, the process, because it doesn't help with all the scrutiny and the speculation. Yeah. And, well, we all know, don't we, that international breaks, the news agenda it's crying out for stories and right on cue, uh, Van Gaal, you know, came up with a you know a case of revenge, best served cold, I suppose. Hey, have you got any sympathy with his suggestion that Ten Hag should join, and I quote, a football club, not a commercial club? <laughs> Do you think that sort of unsolicited advice is likely to be heeded? <laughs> well, he plants a seed, doesn't it, in his head? But I think we all know that that Manchester United are a commercial you know machine you know, but but they need to to retain their their sort of status in regards to money making they do need success on the pitch don't they they need a title they need trophies otherwise they'll just become yesterday's men so it it is really important that there's a shift at Old Trafford and a real focus on 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 what the football side want and what the manager wants I know that Van Gaal wasn't happy was he with long pre-season tours and the sort of the club the, the, the club's recruitment process and, and I get all that and and yeah it's a dig isn't it at Manchester United <laughs> and and you, you probably can't blame Louis Van Gaal for, for making that dig it's it's a funny one it, it feels like a two-horse race doesn't it between Ten Hag and Pochettino but both there are there are question marks over over the pair of them in terms of getting over the line in big games that you know both have had sort of big collapses and and I don't think that 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 should be ignored and and also on on Ten Hag because I think he would be the most exciting option because he's someone fresh and new and he's done great things building two excellent Ajax sides but the question is you know he's not managed a true global giant has he Ajax is a big club of course it is but the pressure on a Manchester United boss with the quality of players that you're working with, he's unproven. His dressing room, right, the two star players, really, two of the stars, are Sebastian Haller and Dusan Tadic. Guys who were playing for Southampton and West Ham and they weren't even in the West Ham team, Haller. So to then go into a dressing room coaching Ronaldo and, and everybody else there is a huge step up and... 
until you do it, you don't know whether you whether whether you're going to thrive or fall. So so he's a risk, and, and Pochettino is an obvious risk because it's turning into a car crash at PSG, and you know he's still still not won a great deal, has he? So so I don't think either either of these candidates are you know the, the best in the world. I just don't. Mm, yeah, I suppose referring a bit back to Harry Maguire here, but. You know, just realised that you know Van Hal was actually booed by his own fans when he just won the world, uh, won the FA Cup. Unbelievable! Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit weird, isn't it? Um, you know, if we do, you think you, know, you look at United, Amory, and you think, okay, the culture needs to change. Now, is that culture shift impossible without a big squad rebuild? And if you agree with that, who should be jettisoned? Who should go? I think it's inevitable there's going to be a squad rebuild. There has to be. And I think Adrian got it spot on earlier when he said about Manchester United was a club that told you if they wanted you or you were on your way out the door. It wasn't the other way around. And I think that's going to have to go. It will have to go back to that a little bit because of the size of Manchester United, who they are within the world of club football and also international football as well. And if that is the case, those who will probably head towards the exit door I would my one I would one I definitely would go for is Jesse Lingard. I still to this day cannot understand why for whatever reasons I don't know but though you know I thought he was brilliant with West Ham absolutely brilliant and I think he just shone there was something different about him that aura that he just looked like he was loving life and loving football and I just don't think it's it's happened well, I just don't think it hasn't happened at Manchester United since Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said that Jesse Lingard would play a part and then OGS leaves and Jesse Lingard is still not playing a part so I think he's you know he's drifting further away from the England squad and he's a free agent this summer Take it, Jesse. That would be my plea to you, please. <laughs> my other one is Eric Bailly. I think he's been inconsistent. They need to sort out that back line. I like Rafael Varane, but he's injury prone. You cannot rely on, on him. And that was my big concern, him coming to Manchester United. And that was the thing I like about Manchester United, that rock-hard, solid back line from back in the day. So he's failed to establish like a regular place. And he's also slightly injury prone. I think he's fallen down the pecking order of centre-back options as well, so maybe it's time to cash in. I think his contract runs until twenty twenty four, so maybe cash in on on that. There'd be my two, I would think. That I, I'd, go, I'd go a bit further. I, th- I think I a number think of would, Adrian, yeah, yes. high profile. <laughs> I think what's needed is is the odd high profile sacrifice. A really tough decision getting rid of a really good player for other reasons because they're a certain age, because of the wage packet, because. They just want to bring in someone with a different profile instead. You've sort of seen, and I don't want to use Arsenal as a an example necessarily because they're very much a work in progress. They're not finished article. They've not won anything yet, but they've made some quite tough decisions, got rid of a lot of senior players, high earners to rebuild and to get younger, hungrier players that may be more impressionable players for a young coach for, or for a new coach to come in and, and work with. I think... I think guys like Matic have to go. Cavani, Bai, Pogba for Mata, sure. Wamata. Wamata. I, I think, think maybe anyway, isn't I it? think yeah. even 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 a Luke Shaw, like just as just to, Luke Shaw's a very good player, but they've been constant. It's been such a roller coaster ride. It's of good form, bad form, good attitude, bad attitude. I just think sometimes you have to make a tough call and say we're you know we're looking for. We're looking for more. 
We're looking for for somebody that can deliver for us consistently over a number of years. I mean, they're just a few. Lindelof, I think Rashford is a really interesting case. If he's not happy, then that's a real high-profile exit that, that sort of... Sh- Closes the door on an era to some extent, doesn't it? And and opens up a new one. I, I, I think there could be a lot of movement at Manchester United this summer. And, and I think it, it would be a positive. I really do an overwhelming positive. That said, Mike, going back to your original question, I think a culture shift can take place with the same group of players because players want to listen. And, and you know, you look at what Wenger did at Arsenal when I was there. You know, same players largely at the start unbelievable difference because they respected what he was saying. Tuchel at Chelsea, the difference that he brought in, you know, the difference he made with the same players Lampard has was remarkable. It can happen, but I think at United, they need to clear the decks. There are too many um, big personalities that that aren't happy. It's all a bit too Hollywood, isn't it, really, at the moment? Um, (laughs) And I suppose all this begs the question, Amory, who would come in in those circumstances? Um, Harry Kane? Oh man, I've got no idea. <laughs> I re- I really I really don't because just listening to what Adrian was saying about you know having a big clear out and just seeing the the players that are going to become available in the summer. I know there was a lot of talk, obviously, about Declan Rice potentially the hundred fifty million pound move. I think that's all. I would say personally, that's a question mark now because the fact that United are, are no longer in Europe and they're outside pretty much the European places so I mean they could get back in it they could if point if other teams drop points I I just don't I really don't know I don't know if Kane would suit I mean that's more maybe Adrian's territory than mine I'm not sure if Kane would be able to I think they're going to look afar I mean there was one name that was doing the rounds Amadou Hadara of IB Leipzig he's somebody who's come under Ralph Rangnick's wing as part of the Bundesliga, he's been talked about potentially coming to United. He's a box-to-box midfielder, but he's contracted at uh, Leipzig till 2025. But there's a release clause and, you know, Manchester United, despite everybody saying that, you know, the club has a lot of debt, can spend. So I think it's around 30 million, 32, 33 million release clause, something like that. I don't know. It's it's a tough one. I, I, I don't know. On, on Kane, Kane, Kane and Ronaldo just doesn't work, does it? I, I just don't see. I think you'd have to let Ronaldo go to bring Kane. And and for for me, if I was in Harry Kane's shoes, if I was going to sacrifice, you know, the, the inevitable sort of opportunity to break all the records, smash every record going at Spurs, and become pretty immortal there, then you've got to do it for guaranteed trophies right away, haven't you? <laughs> and 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 it, that's City, isn't it? Really. Or Liverpool, City or Liverpool, I think is is where Kane should be, should be going. Uh, I wouldn't be going to Manchester United in, in, at this point if I was him. Yeah, mention of City and Liverpool. Obviously, the title countdown resumes this weekend. You know, it is getting near the business end of things. We've got Roy Hodgson and we're returning to Liverpool. You know, almost a sort of he's a bit of a whisper from another era there. Different club now, isn't it? Whisper from another era. I love that. I'm going to nick that from you, Mike. Uh, that's great. And I think that's perfect. It really, really sums it up. Look, I think Roy Hudson was onto a hiding into nothing when he took over from Liverpool because of Rafa Benitez. He was such a fan favourite at that time. This was somebody who bought trophies to Liverpool, got them into finals over the six years. And, and at the time, the club was very much split between the board 
and the fans. And Roy Hodgson is a manager still known to this day as somebody who brings stability to clubs, his pragmatism, and to get the best out of players. And Liverpool's not like that, and they're not like that today. You look at them, they're just like attacking you from the get-go. It is a, bl- a blend now of the defence and the attack. So, yes, it is 100% a different club from what it was under Roy Hodgson's tenure. It's, you know, Liverpool is a team that like to take advantage from the, you know, they'll crush you. They will crush the opposition, completely opposite to Roy Hodgson's tactics. So, and also I don't think fans necessarily brought into Roy Hodgson's philosophy now, whereas whereas with Klopp, they live that it, That could they be an understatement, it. by the yeah, way. Yeah, they live it, they breathe it, they worship at it. So, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting setup, isn't it? I think between that game and, and Watford at Liverpool, how the tactics are going to play out for that match. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you how the tactics are going to be. Liverpool are going to have the ball and, and, and attack them for almost the entire 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you make of the way that the, the Liverpool team is is beginning to evolve, Aid? We can't get away from the Mane and Salah psychodrama. You've got the front three is that evolving quickly now? Because you've got Luis Diaz coming in. He's accelerated that pace of change, hasn't he? He really has, yeah. As has Shotta. Before it was three, now there's five. And they're just... They are a sensational unit. The best set of four players, I think, around. They're, they're, all, they're all perfect for the style of play. They're all tremendously exciting. And when you chuck in two of the best attacking fullbacks on the planet in Robertson and Alexander Arnold who who provide that service from from the wings you're getting three of those five in the box all the time aren't you to be in the best positions to score goals i think they're a sensational side and they're on course aren't they they're on course to potentially win the league potentially win a number of trophies this this season and in a strange kind of way, I think Salah's disappointment in the World Cup qualifiers, Luis Diaz's disappointment in the World Cup qualifiers with Colombia, they might just sort of refocus their their, their minds and attention on, on club football. And, and, and I would expect those two to, to have plenty of fire in their belly this weekend and in the weeks moving forwards because it's all about Liverpool for them moving forwards now. So, um, yeah, this is... This could be one of the, you know, the all-time great sides, this Liverpool group. I, I firmly believe that. Aid, what do you think um, the priorities for Liverpool? Do you think they it's the Premier League for them or the Champions League for them? <laughs> it's Premier League, I think. I think it has to be Premier League. They've done the Champions League, haven't they? they they've done it over and over again. Of course, that's it's kind of, they feel that's their competition as well as Real Madrid, of course, but... But yeah, in terms of English clubs, they're the, they're the dominant force. But I think if they could regain the title from Manchester City, given how far City were ahead of them, that would be a telling blow, wouldn't it? In this sort of head-to-head between Pep and Klopp, that would be that would be an awesome plot twist, I think, for Liverpool to to reclaim the the crown. And and I think they're capable of doing it. I really do. But but it. It could go to the wire, and and that's what we're all hoping happens, I guess, from a neutral point of view. We we need a title race this year. Mm. Um, we're also looking at you know, almost like an arms race between City and Liverpool going forward, don't we? You know, City have got you know, more money than they can spend, probably. Liverpool, they've been linked with Jude Bellingham. Now, 
I don't know about you, Aid, but okay, he was a standout performer with England, but I would absolutely walk to Germany to get him. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Uh, how good is it going to be? I mean, for someone his age to be this mature, this intelligent, this comfortable at the highest level is is not normal. Jude Bellingham <laughs> is a very, very special talent and he would walk into their team. I've just described them as Hall of Famers, really, this Liverpool squad. He would walk into it and improve their midfield. That's how good Jude Bellingham is. And yeah, no matter what what he costs, I think they should go out and get him. I think the seeds were, were you know were planted a while back. I think that they were they've been in the race for Jude Bellingham for a long, long, long time. If I was him and I was going to make the move back to the Premier League, I wouldn't look anywhere else. I would just rock up at Anfield and say, where do I sign? Mm. What about Manchester City and specifically Raheem Sterling, Amory? Obviously, you saw him captain England. He is looking like a key World Cup player. But what awaits for him at club level, do you think? It's a really good question, he hasn't always started for Manchester City, has he, Raheem Sterling? And and do correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, and Adrian and Mike, but I don't remember a time that he's moaned about it or has alluded to the fact that he doesn't necessarily come off start. I think mm. he's just pretty much just got on. With it, he's agent occasionally his agent in, doesn't he? But... <laughs> him, him himself, because some players no, do he, like yeah. to vocalise it. Yeah, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And I think that's quite, that's quite impressive for me. Being in one of the top teams in the land, you don't necessarily get a starting place, but you still get on with the job. He's a talisman for England, as you rightly pointed out, Mike. I think he will be his first, his name will be first on the team sheet. That'll be sure going to Qatar. And I thought he was brilliant, by the way, as a sidebar for captaining Cote d'Ivoire. I thought he was really, really great. I think it's a timely reminder for Pep Guardiola what Raheem Sterling is all about. Those big, big games. There are big games coming up, gents, over the next few weeks with the FA Cup, the Champions League, the Premier League as well. He's a player who loves to roam with the ball. And I just wish Pep would give him the freedom to do that a little bit more sometimes when he's on the pitch. But uh, yeah, with all those games coming up... I'd say this to you, Pep, I would utilise uh, Raheem as much as possible. Not that you're going to listen to me, but uh, <laughs> I would because you've got some massive games and not everybody's going to be fit at the same time. So use him as much as possible. Yeah, City are at Turf Moor. I, I suppose we need to, or Burnley need, to make the most of the discomforts of home, don't they? You know, I'm, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking out and it's snowing like mad. Um, that would be a typical Turf Moor day, wouldn't it? They will hope it will be, but will they get the ball? <laughs> will they be able to make it their kind of match? That would be my my worry. City have an amazing record against Burnley, I think, and 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 yeah, they they don't tend to slip up as often as maybe we would think they do. City in these type of fixtures, they 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 tend to just control it and make it their type of game and and, and get the job done, don't they? And, yeah, I, I, I worry for Burnley. I do. I think that they need to get need to get more out of Cornet, McNeil, Veghorst, of course. Only scored twenty two goals this season. Not enough clean sheets, although they have, which I think is is really interesting. They have conceded fewer than Man United this season. <laughs> Burnley, <laughs> you consider where where both teams are in the league. That that's that's amazing. I know they've played a couple of games less, but it's still a good stat. Yeah, it, I think on Burnley. 
they took a bit of a gamble at the start of the season to sort of evolve the team and bring in better quality technical players. And that, I think, is the way forward. But has it been at the detriment of the qualities that got them where they are? Maybe. I think they're just not as tough to play against, are they? Not as, not as rugged. Yeah. Everton are at West Ham on Sunday, and that's followed by an, by a trip to a Turf Moor, which is looking extremely interesting as we speak. Is relegation there, do you think, a real threat, Amory? Because the financial consequences of going down, and here's a club that lost $121 million last season. The financial consequences of going down are horrendous, aren't they? I can't believe we're having this conversation. 30 years that Everton has been part of football at the top level and we're now discussing the potential for them to be relegated to the championship it just it's it's absolutely mind-boggling absolutely mind-boggling that figure Mike you know 372 million over three years any other business would be bust right so you know for me being a business is about reducing your losses and increasing your turnover Everton aren't doing that they haven't done that for some time and one could one could argue that Everton have have shown I know Toffees fans are going to disagree with this, but they have shown, or they've tried to show, I'll say it that way, ambition with the likes of top managers like Carlo Ancelotti. I think that was a big blow when he went to Real Madrid. I've got to be honest. I think that was a massive blow. And they've spent money significantly on players. What's slightly undone them, and I'm being generous, is that some of those players haven't delivered for the big bucks that they wanted. They haven't delivered for the team and now they're they're unravelling and this has been accumulation of stuff that's happened over the last few years. I, I, I just cannot get my mind around the potential that Everton could be relegated and I'm starting to wonder, is this a too big a job now for Frank Lampard to save the Toffees? Mm. With, with, with Frank Lampard in mind, I, you know, we know that managerial careers are really, you know, very fragile and you have to make the right choice at the right time. Does it look to you that Frank's made the wrong choice at the wrong time? Well, it does at the moment, but but things can turn around, can't they? I think it was quite brave of him to go in, but it's an opportunity to manage a huge club and and every manager will rate themselves, won't they? And and they will believe that they're good enough to to bring the good times back. The early signs suggest it's going to be very difficult for Frank Lampard. They are in trouble. I know they won the last game, but that was not convincing performance. They are the most fragile Everton team I think I've ever seen because I, I grew up with Everton in the in the 80s when they were brilliant and then obviously they were a bit of a dip. But I don't remember them being this bad at the back ever, this bad without the ball. You know, they're very, they, and, and their propensity to collapse when the going gets tough really stands out and, and that's a worry. Isn't it? So, yeah, they're, they're an ambitious club, but they, but it's been mismanaged, hasn't it? And it's a bit like I think the, the problems there stem far beyond the players, and and you know certainly not Frank Lampard, but with football knowledge at the top, right? you know, Ken Wright and Mashiri, just you know, they, I think they need help. And I know that Graham Sharp has has come in, hasn't he, to help with the the football strategy, a real legend. At Goodison, but it's got a lot of work to do because I, I just think so many 
truly terrible decisions have been made in that footballing department in recent years and they're paying the price for it and when you couple, when you throw in the injury to, to, to Calvert-Lewin and others you know it's it's culminated in this and I think there is a, a very real prospect they'll go down I, yeah I think I would just I would at the right now I'd, I'd say they might just save themselves but I'm not convinced at all by by them Adrian, can you imagine, just very quickly, guys, can you imagine, worst case scenario, worst, worst case scenario, if Everton were to go down and Liverpool were to win the Premier League? <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave that there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't bear thinking about for, you know, for Toffees that living in that city. That would be, uh, yeah, horrendous. Yeah. Um, you know, Norwich, you know, I'm not saying they've accepted their fate, but there does seem to be almost like a an air of resignation about them at the moment. They're at Brighton, which is a club in need of a stabilising wing in itself. So I want to focus on Norwich, though, Anne-Marie. As always in this sort of case, the manager becomes the scapegoat. Well, that's self-defeating, isn't it, in the case of Dean Smith? Because, OK, if you're going to have a, a yo-yo model, someone like him can get you back up. Yeah, that is true. That is true. And I've had discussions with people about having what I call a Premier League 2, which has been shot down in flames several times when I bring it up, only because I think now that there needs to be, a, and it will never happen, but in my world, I'd like to think that there's the championship and there's like in inverted commas, a Premier League 2 in the Premier League, because you're now seeing teams that when they go down, some of the teams that go down back into the championship, they're back at the top of the championship for weeks, 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 come back into the Premier League and then yo-yo back down again. It's, you know, you're going to get to a point where there are some teams that are going to be remaining in the Premier League for years on end. And we've seen that at the top end and those who are going to be going up and then down and up and down. And I just think... It's for, not boring though, is it? It's, it's, it's quite it's, exciting if you're a fan. But not for your... But if you're a player, Adrian, from a player perspective, it's it, it can't be good in that sense of, you know, one minute you're playing at top level and then you're back down in the championship, which is top level football before Football League fans get on my case. Mm-hmm. I get that. But... <laughs> You know, when I've interviewed Norwich players, they talk about their love for playing in the Premier League. It's everything. It's everything. And, yeah, you're right. It's, you know, they're not accepting their fate, Mike, not at all, not Dean Smith. You put that question to him, he will, in a nice way, rebut it. So until that, he always talks about, in this last presser that I did with him, Dean Smith talked about it's not over until the final whistle on the final day. And that's what he keeps telling the players. Everyone else around it is like, well... Mm. we're coming into the business end now. They're eight points from safety. They've lost the last six games in the Premier League. This match against Brighton is very intriguing. I'm looking forward to seeing it, see how that's going to play out. If they do go down, I think Dean Smith is the person to bring them straight back up. The question is, will he be wanting to do that? And will they let him, I suppose, as well? You know, Brentford are at Chelsea aid. Christian Eriksen, he's by a country mile, the feel-good story of the break, you know, two goals in two games for Denmark. Do you think it's realistic to expect him to maintain that sort of impact at club level? And do you think Brentford could even persuade him to extend that short-term contract he's got? Or will you know probably the top six turn up? <laughs> I don't know if the top six will turn up. He has been brilliant. It's an awesome story. And it, it looks like the, the break, OK, it's not the kind of break any person would ever want, but it looks like it's... It's done him good in a way. He's come back refreshed and he looks remarkably confident and 
and and and yeah, maybe he's just playing with even more freedom, and he's more determined to enjoy himself on a, on a football pitch than he was before. Because you know what it's like in life; he, everything's so hectic, and you know, in his shoes, the pressure of being the star man for Denmark, and you know, weight on his shoulders. Maybe he wasn't enjoying himself that much prior to to what happened, and he's got that he's got that second chance, hasn't he? And he's he's living his best life at the moment. I'd love him to stay at Brentford because I think he can help elevate them as a club, as a team next season to to get them you know pushed up closer towards mid table. He can do, certainly do that. But but yeah, hand on heart, I, I think that the, that the bigger clubs will certainly be looking at his form and thinking. Oh, would love to have him, but I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say the top six. I think maybe, you know, maybe they'd look past him this this time around. What about Spurs? Coming back to Spurs, that'd be a story, wouldn't it? And, you know, they're at home to Newcastle on Sunday. Amory, again, a strange break. Christian Romero went all the way to South America. Argentina's appeal against his suspension was rejected, and he turned up back at Tottenham. Those sort of distractions. Can't help, can they? Argentina is at fault, right? Because this is a nonsense. He's been banned for two matches. So, you know, what's the point of appealing it in the first place? Because Argentina have qualified for the World Cup, by the way, everybody. So he doesn't need to play in this particular match because he's probably going to be on the plane anyway. It made absolutely zero sense for me. And this isn't the first time Christian Romero has been involved in some sort of controversy there was the whole covid debacle do you remember when they you know the officials went on the pitch to get the players off during the the crisis of with covid as well and i still remember him shouting in the face of harry maguire when harry maguire scored that own goal so you know i you know it's, it's a nonsense i don't know what argentina were thinking to be honest i think you know one could say well they were taking a bit of a risk i think they were trying to, they were playing silly beggars quite frankly and thought they were arrogant enough to get everything overturned and now it's just going to rub Antonio Conte up the wrong way because he's flown all the way over there. He's flown all the way back. Jet lag, being a little bit out of sorts. It's it's a nonsense. I don't know what Argentina were thinking in the first place. I think it smacks of arrogance, quite frankly. Mm, yeah. Oliver Skip, who's a player that Conte really likes, Adrian, he's still injured. He hasn't played since January. Interesting concept here that he's almost paying the price, it's said, because he's played too much football in the previous 18 months. Is that the sort of injury you think we might have to start getting used to? Because especially when you think about it, there's going to be about 20 milliseconds break between seasons because of the World Cup. Footballers are paid to play football matches, aren't they? And they'll always want to play. I mean, the calendar is what it is. I don't know. I think it's. I think you've got to look at the people around him and 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 say, look, they've got to recognise when 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 is too much and take them out before the player gets injured. I mean, this is what the red zone is all about, isn't it? So, I think, yeah, it's a difficult one. But because I would look at Oliver Skip and and I have to say, has he played more football than Declan Rice or any any number of central midfielders? I, I don't think so. And Declan looks looks fit as a fiddle, doesn't he? So everybody's different. And I think you have to, as... There's so many staff there as well. When I played, you had a manager, an assistant, a reserve manager, a youth manager and a physio, right? 
<laughs> that was it. Okay, that's not. I mean, it is a long time ago, but it doesn't feel like that long, that long ago. Nowadays, you've got the first team squad has got I don't know twelve, fifteen support staff. You know, it's up, it's up to these people to, to to manage the loads. So no, I, the playing too much football bit. I, I, no, I'm not having it because you know big squads are there for a reason. Players can be rested. You've just got to recognise it, and they have enough people around to to know when someone needs to be taken out. Yeah, Arsenal, you know, a club close to both your hearts. They're at Palace on Monday. What do you make? You know, I mentioned it in passing earlier on that it's a work in progress, Anne Marie, but you can see real progress here, can't you? Green shoots, the green shoots, mm-hmm. as everyone keeps talking about. Look, I mean. Apart from a couple of high-profile dissenters, <laughs> Piers Morgan talking about <laughs> um, Arsenal at the moment and his unhappiness with certain things, I think you cannot you cannot take away from the fact that from where Arsenal were at the beginning of the season to where they are now is you know you've got to give somebody a pat on the back for that, and that's going to be Arteta and the players as well, of course, because they've played their part. But at the forefront, it will be Arteta. It just um, you know, I think it's going to go right down the wire for fourth place. Tottenham's still going to have a say. Manchester United is still going to have a say. But uh, I think this idea that young players, you know, you can't win anything with kids from back in the day that Alan Hansen has said, you know, you can push that aside now. We've seen over the last few seasons in the Premier League, the youngers, as the young people say, are really starting to step up. You just mentioned Declan Rice there. Declan's what, 21, 22? Ollie Skip's quite young as well. You know, that age group, 21, 22, 23, 24, they've really stepped up, I think. so, And I think they've actually shown the senior players what it means to play and the hunger and the desire. And that's been seriously reflected in Arsenal's play over the last few weeks. Yeah, I'm just going to go off at a tangent here very quickly, Adrian, but I'd just like your thoughts. You know, you mentioned Declan Rice. We've already mentioned Jude Bellingham. You know, they're the dream team, aren't they? If you get get them in an England team. They are. Yeah, that's two of your midfield slots um, sorted, in my opinion. Yeah, just, just, yeah, that that is a combination that, that is going to be outstanding for... Yeah, for, for for England, I think in in for many years to come. And when you chuck in Phil Foden, maybe maybe even chuck in Bakayo Saka to the conversation, you have got four of the four of the finest young talents in their positions in the world. We're very lucky to be you know living through this particular era. Yeah, when we look at good young players or very very good young players, Martinelli and Marie. You know, it's no wonder that Liverpool are said to be interested. Are we looking at a star in the making here? Oh, 100%. I love watching Martinelli play. I love his fearlessness. I love it. And, you know, that the way that he gave Trent Alexander-Arnold a hard time in the Carabao Cup semi-final, obviously the result went Liverpool's way, but he was just absolutely outstanding against TAA. He gave him a whole load of problems. Injury has halted his progress a little bit but it hasn't held him back he still plays at going at 100% which all the time which I think something Arteta kind of alluded to that he's having to teach him when to to accelerate and when to slow down a bit but it's that fearlessness that I love and I can see why he's attracted Jurgen Klopp in that sense of seeing you know who he would slot into that team like tomorrow I think but I think in his heart 
I'd like to think. Uh, Ar- <laughs> Stop it, Amory. Arsenal, Stop it. Arsenal, no, 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 no. Arsenal, I believe he's loving his life at Arsenal right now. He loves being there. He loves playing for the Gunners. He loves being around Saka, Milsifro, Lacazette and Ramsdale as well. I just, yeah, you can call him, you know, Klopp called him an outstanding player, but that's a massive leap from leaving Arsenal to go and join Liverpool. So I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, credit to him that a top-class manager has identified him as a fantastic player because he is. Yeah, leave him alone, Jürgen, leave him alone. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I did some analysis on Arsenal's season so far this week. I think it's coming out today or tomorrow. The... It's just sort of, sort of focusing on the stats, and the, it was remarkable. The, 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 there were so many strands to to the development of the team. A couple I'll pick out for you. Obviously, this is well known, but Arsenal do have the youngest starting eleven in the Premier League this season, given their form. I think that's commendable. But the previous two campaigns, Mikel Arteta made the second most and third most changes to his starting eleven in the previous two seasons. This season, it's the second fewest. Changes to a starting eleven. Uh, only West Ham United have have made fewer changes. That is a wonderful sign. The individual data for Saka, for Odegaard, for Smith Rowe has gone through the roof. You're, talk, you're talking about shots, you know, minutes per goal, you know, chances created, all of these things. It, clean sheets. Arsenal, forty six percent of their matches have ended with a clean sheet. That hasn't happened since 2015-16. So, so you look right through, right through what's going on there at the moment, and it's, there are sort of ticks. But the bottom line is, despite all of that, they've got a job to do now, haven't they? They've got to get it over the line and and finish top four. It will be close because Spurs are strong and, and United have got great players. So, yeah, I think I think it personally, I think it's between Arsenal and Spurs, and I think it will might just boil down to that. That rearranged North London derby, which is great for the narrative, isn't it? I think mm. that, and I think that's why the Premier League are holding it back. They want it to to have the most weight possible. Yeah, they'll, they'll have their work cut out at Palace, though, won't they, um, Amory? Oh yeah, I'm loving what Patriera is doing with Palace right now, and uh, it was so lovely to see Mark Gay get 90 minutes against uh, Switzerland and Tyreek Mitchell coming onto the pitch and, and Conor Gallagher. As well, I think uh, I think Crystal Palace and Arsenal is going to be really exciting to watch because you know it's a London derby, but more than that, because you've got both you've got players within both teams, and I use that word about Martinelli who are fearless, absolutely fearless. So yeah, I think it's going to be a cracker to watch. <laughs> what about Conor Gallagher, Adrian? Obviously, you know, again, one of the successes of the break with England. Southgate was talking about his ability to set the tone for a team in the nature of his pressing. Is he facing the dilemma of the successful loan player? In other words, do you think, will he be given the chance to thrive if he returns to his parents' club, Chelsea? Mm, it's Yeah, it is a crossroads moment in his career, isn't it? It's exciting times. It's where you want to be. You want to be a successful loan that, that, that then puts people in awkward positions. <sighs> I really like him as a player because he's 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 like an old-fashioned midfielder. He is box to box. He'll do the defensive bit. He'll get around the pitch. He will press. He will win the ball back. But he'll also score goals and he can pass. So he's he's got it all. I think I think he could get in Chelsea's team. I genuinely do. I think if they were to, I think if Chelsea were to say offload a Kovacic 
and give his spot to Conor Gallagher, would they be weakened? I don't think they would. So I would love to see it happen. And look, if Chelsea don't take up an option on him and they don't give him the opportunity that, that I think we all agree he deserves, then someone else will. And I think that, you know, for example, you know, on Arsenal, are probably looking for a player in that position, you know, a number eight left side of midfield, you know, they've been linked with Tielemans. Um, I dream of Bellingham, it's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Gallagher is, is someone that, that might come into that, 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 that thinking. So he won't be short of suitors. His career is on an, a steep upward trajectory. And the only, down, the only downer is that I think he's proved that he's maybe too good to stay at Palace. And, and I feel sorry for Vieira and, and the Eagles there because, you know, they, they gave him that platform. Mm. Just want to end with a couple of questions, one to each of you, please. Amory, you know, you follow the, the women's game. You know, this on Wednesday, we had 91,500 people watching Barcelona defeat Real Madrid at the Camp Nou. How significant a moment, do you think, was that for the women's game as a whole? If anybody wants to now say who cares about women's football and who who gives a stuff about women's sport in general, I'm just going to point to the figure of 91,000 in Camp Nou watching and enjoying a cracking UEFA Women's Champions League quarterfinal between Barcelona women and Real Madrid. You can't say anything to me anymore about it. You cannot say anything to me anymore because just seeing the pictures of a full Camp Nou enjoying a, a brilliant match between two of the best teams in Spanish women's football said it all for me. The pictures said it all for me. The quality on the pitch said it all for me. And I love the fact that Alexis Putea actually got a yellow card for diving. <laughs> so, you know, a strong ref as well. She was brilliant, the ref. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, yeah, it's uh, you can't say anything anymore. I don't, you know, this argument that, you know, women's sport is boring and women's football is boring. I think that just those pictures last night, seeing, you know, the quality between those two teams. It's just, I know, and, and since then, actually, Mike, there's been several tweets about, well, is it the biggest attendance ever? And there's various points saying that there were games around the world that might have had slightly bigger teams, but they were unofficially recorded. This is an official recording now and it will stay in the history books. So congratulations to Barcelona. I think they are the team to beat. Arsenal still left in the uh, Champions League, but Barcelona, goodness me, from what I was watching last night, they are the team to beat. And I, no one's beating them. No one's beating them. <laughs> no one. No one. But I loved it, Mike. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And I could wax lyrical about it all day, but I'm slightly conscious about time. But I thought it was absolutely brilliant. That's my short answer. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And, you know, the, the mood at the place was exactly the same were it a men's game. You know, if we're talking about moods and players who can, you know, create a certain mood... Just want to finish with you, Aid, on Gareth Bale. You know, he's made an extraordinary impact with Wales, but he's a pariah at Real Madrid. Do you think football's got any more challenges for him, apart from obviously the World Cup? I do actually. I think there's one there's one challenge out there for him, and I I'm desperate that he takes it up and, and that he embraces it, and that's to finish his career at Cardiff City. I just think that that would be the perfect way for him to a get out of his this nightmare at Real Madrid, which must be draining on him, and you know it's just it, it's not a nice experience. He's shown he's still got it, 
He's shown, he's, he's, you know, he's uh, 33 this summer. So he's coming towards the end. We know that. I just think what better way than to come back to your sort of home, hometown and round off your career. He could do it for pocket money. He doesn't need the cash, does he? But but what what an impact that would have on on the club, on the EFL actually uh, in general. And I think it would it would make him happy. I think as well, providing of course it goes all right. <laughs> it, you know that's always the risk, isn't it? You go back and it and it doesn't it doesn't go so well. But but that would be a lovely little bookstop. You know, sort of bookstop at the end of of Gareth Bale's career to to rejoin Cardiff City. And I looked at the odds, and there are odds on this. Hmm. Cardiff City are favourites to be Gareth Bale's next club. So yeah, maybe maybe it might just happen. Yeah, nice end to the story and all that. I've I've always found Gareth Bale a really grounded character. You know, of course he's wealthy beyond his imagination as a kid growing up in Cardiff. But what I quite like about him, or I really like about him, is he sees through football's fluff and nonsense. You know, especially the the sort of petty politics that swells around Real Madrid. Okay, things are ending on a very sour note there, but. I think he was right to call out some of the criticism in the Spanish media. He may decide to go out on a high with Wales, given the chance, but whatever decision he makes, he still had a great career and good luck to him. In the meantime, thanks to Anne-Marie and Adrian for their insights, and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 